0: Okay, look, at the start of the month, we said we were going to talk about the Persian Empire for the entire month of April. And we have done. This episode is definitely about Persia, just like all the rest. But you may have noticed two things. First, we really started to talk about this whole Persia thing at the end of March when we brought up Herodotus, because he asked and then tried to answer a question in a way no one ever had before and earned himself the title, the Father of History. Which, if you need a refresher, you can get by listening to our history episode. The question was, why did the Greeks have so much trouble getting along with the Persians? What was the historical basis for all the conflicts? And what a question to try answering. Mostly because in order to answer it, Herodotus had to include not only almost all of what was then modern history, but also quite a lot of what amounts to pre-history, because he reckoned it all had its roots in the Trojan War, which, as you'll recall, involved a beautiful horse and a hollow woman. The answer, believe it or not, to why the Greeks and Persians couldn't really seem to leave each other alone turns out to be surprisingly simple. The key to answering the question is to remember the one thing Greece wasn't way back then, which was Greece. Oh, sure. There was a region of the world which was referred to as Greece or something very like it, but there wasn't really a country called Greece. If you remember your history, Greece was mostly a bunch of similar people with a mostly similar language and a few shared origin stories and similar mythologies, and that's really about as far as it went. Past that point, what amounted to Greece was a whole bunch of autonomous city-states and tribes arranged around the Aegean Sea, that could barely understand how any of the other city-states and tribes around the Aegean Sea could consider themselves to be true Greeks. Consider that on the one hand you had Sparta, a fierce but honorable warrior culture which inspired every other warrior fantasy or sci-fi culture you care to name on TV or in books, and on the other you had Athens, which was busy writing plays, poems, and stories and trying out the whole democracy alpha test. Calling any particular group of people Greek was an open invitation to hear about how they weren't Greek enough from everyone else who called themselves Greek. Well, this same level of divisiveness swiftly became the standard method of doing business and conducting politics in any given Greek city-state. Athens, in particular, seemed to be the model for much of the way politics is conducted today. Especially given that in the middle of everything, Athens decided it didn't like kings anymore and it was time to try this hip new democracy thing. Except that no one really understood how it was all supposed to work and they kept voting people off the island every year when it turned out they didn't democracy enough. Seriously, every year a group of Athenian politicians would be up for a vote depending on who was in and who was out and whether they said all the right words the last time they were on the podium. This wasn't the sort of election you wanted to win, though. Every Athenian citizen got to cast their vote, and the winner, decided by counting pot shards with the nominee's name on them, was given 10 years free exile and kicked out of Athens to make their own way in the world. And we know what you're thinking. If only we could vote politicians we don't like into exile ourselves. How did we not pick up that part of it all? Well, the reason we didn't pick up that part of it was practically the same reason the Greeks and Persians couldn't get along. And we told you it was a surprisingly easy answer to come by. The Greeks were a mess because they all seemed to have different cultures and their politics were a mess because no one could agree on anything, even the people who agreed to try democracy. And all anyone on the outside had to do was look at Greece to see what a mess it was. Practically every time anyone who had had a bit of clout in Greek politics got sent into exile, among the first things they would try to do was get some sort of alliance going to get back into power. And once they had, and sometimes even if they hadn't, they'd tried to get their political rivals exiled in revenge. The whole thing meant that Greece was politically weak and vulnerable, and the real trick of continuing to be Greek and not being invaded, subjugated, and taken over by someone else was to cross your fingers really hard and hope no one ever looked your way to notice how bad things really were. Which is why, in about 500 BCE, when the revolting shirt-tail Greeks, the Ionians, popped up and waved goodbye to the Persians, or so they thought, it turned out to be a really bad idea for everyone involved, and meant Darius the Great was going to have to come to Greece and do a marathon. Which is the second thing you may have noticed. We didn't finish Darius' story last week. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. You'll know all about marathon, of course. Some Greek ran 26 miles or so in one day, and so we get to have the Olympics well, that's certainly the sort of impression you would get if you relied solely on easily quotable facts for your sense of history. In reality, the Battle of Marathon was what people like to refer to as a watershed moment in Greek-Persian relations. Watershed, by the way, just means a crucial dividing point between two things, like the Continental Divide in North America, where water on one side flows eventually to the West and the Pacific, and on the other to the East and the Atlantic. On one side of Marathon... Was the massive, invincible, unstoppable Persian Empire and a disorganized, barely capable Greece. On the other side of it, everything was different. If you remember our episode on Cyrus, eventually, in finally settling Lydia's hash, he sent his favorite mead, Harpagus, to show them who was boss. And so enthusiastic was Harpagus that he kept right on going into the West until he ran up on the shores of the Aegean and discovered all the displaced Greeks living there. He proceeded to conquer these people, called Ionians, as well, and make them part of the Persian Empire. Well, the problem with that, of course, was that not everyone in the Ionian settlements was entirely on board with the plan. But when you get to looking around and discover there is basically a Persian or a mead outside every door and window in town, it's hard to argue persuasively that this shouldn't be so. The safest bet is to bide your time and let things calm down a bit before making your case, which is what some of the Ionians did. As it turns out, they waited long enough for Cyrus and two other Persian kings to die before deciding that now was the obvious time to go ahead and revolt. Granted, they did wait until after Darius' turbulent first year, during which he ran all over the place putting out other revolts. In fact, they probably took a lot of notes about how it all went down and what Darius was likely to do if they revolted as well, so the Ionians were not only well-informed but also well-incentivized to take their time and go carefully. Finally, along about 498 BCE, the Ionians got up enough gumption to have their revolt, aided by the Eritreans and the Athenians, who sent along some military support. Together, the three groups marched on the city of Sardis, which was the seat of the Persian governors of the region. The governors, also called satraps, up to that point had been a succession of folks who, had they perhaps been nicer and less tyrannical, might not have had their capital burned to the ground around their ears by the combined forces. Considering it a job well done and their freedom from the Persian Empire assured, the Ionians marched back home ready to enjoy their newly found independence unaware that they were being followed back home by Persian troops in the area. The Battle of Ephesus happens, the Ionians are reminded why the Persian army is nearly unbeatable, and things get complicated from there on out as the Ionians spend the next few years on the defensive before being defeated pretty much in their entirety in 493 BCE and bringing to a close the first major conflict between the Greeks and Persians. Once he'd got all that taken care of, Darius looked around and realized most of the trouble had come from Athens and Eritrea. The revolt probably would never have happened had they not both pledged their support. Well, obviously, they had to be taught a lesson. And so, Darius vowed to see Athens destroyed, or at least entirely brought under Persian rule. Now, remember that Darius liked information as much as he could get, and what he saw when he began looking into Athens was all the rest of Greece— which, as we have said, was a veritable mess of people who all claimed to be the one true Greeks to the exclusion of almost every other group claiming to be the one true Greeks. A disorganized rabble of people all pulling in so many different directions that no two of them were even close to coming together. And this troubled Darius. It wasn't tidy. There was no order to it and Athens was clearly one of the big sources of disorganization, and, not to put too fine a point on it, lies. And we all learned last episode how Darius felt about lies. All of Greece was too big a mess to be allowed to hang around bothering the Persian Empire unattended. Something had to be done. Well, the first thing Darius did was send envoys all across Greece, who very patiently explained to every city-state they came across that they could join the Persian Empire and enjoy all the benefits it had to offer for the quite reasonable fee of earth and water. See, in Zoroastrianism, earth and water are highly symbolic. From these two things, all others flow. By pledging earth and water to the Persians, it essentially meant that you were giving up your rights to the land and all that it might produce. Giving up earth and water meant that everything, even their lives, would now belong to Persia. Which, for most of the Greek city-states, was just fine. Take it, they said, just give us some of that sweet, sweet Persian peace and prosperity, and... Since everyone who voluntarily came over to the Persian side got to negotiate the terms and essentially become shareholders in Persia, why would you refuse? Aside from some goods and services sent off to the king every so often, life was largely unchanged because Darius, as you'll remember, was a firm believer in live and let live right up until someone decided to revolt, at which point you had broken your promise. You had lied, and that, as we mentioned, was a very big no-no. So off to Greece go the envoys, and each and very nearly every city-state they came to rolled out the red carpet, presented the requested earth and water, and became part of Persia. Except for two. Legendarily, Sparta refused by pushing the envoys down a well and telling them to look for earth and water there. The only difference from your movie version of things being the script and the fact that it was Darius's envoys and not Xerxes. The other refusal was Athens. Except when they were initially offered it in embassy to Artaphernes, whom you should remember from our previous episode and who was now the governor of Ionia and Sardis, and frankly doing a much better job of it than had been done previously, the Athenian embassy accepted. The ambassadors agreed to the offerings. Earth and water? Sure, don't mind if we do. However, when the Persian envoys arrived in Athens and asked for earth and water, they were asked to take a long walk off a short cliff, at the bottom of which they were assured they could find all the earth and water they needed. A curiously similar response to the Spartan one. Even though the two city-states, now labeled as terrorist states by the Persians, agreed on little else. So, Darius sent the fleet and the army, twice as mad as he ever was, to teach the Athenians a lesson they'd not soon forget. And, as we said, because Greece was such a mess, he decided to conquer all of it and just remove the problem entirely. So, the first Persian invasion of Greece got underway. And frankly, when word came down that Persia was displeased and had decided that Athens wasn't a place that needed to continue to exist, well, the Athenians sort of lost it. And before we go much further, we have to stop down and explain something. See, for reasons which will become clear once we carry on, the Persians don't like talking about the Battle of Marathon much. And you'll recall from our episode on history that if a culture doesn't write about itself, and all the reports about an event or a culture come from outside sources, that sort of makes everything said about that particular culture in that particular event a bit suspect. Unreliable, if you will. The main, and virtually only, source for the Battle of Marathon is the father of history himself, Herodotus. While it is true he did as thorough a job as he could in a way few people previously ever had, the fact is, it is one account written for the Greeks by a Greek. And true, he was technically a Persian, but only because Persia ruled over the Greek city of Helicarnassus. Herodotus was as Greek as any other Greek at the time which may go some way to explaining some of the things said to have happened in the Battle of Marathon. As we said, the Persians don't like to talk about it. In 490 BCE, after years of planning and preparation, Darius finally sent the fleet and the army off to sort out Greece once and for all. Well, his exact orders were a little different, but the desired ending was the same. Darius ordered his military to cross the Aegean and bring peace and stability to all the little Greek islands and city states along the way, and once that was complete, reduce Athens and Eritrea to slavery and bring the slaves before the king. And the force Darius sent to accomplish the task was one of the largest ever seen. Troops were brought in from all over the Persian Empire to do the job, and the fleet was no less impressive in size and across the Aegean they went hopping from island to island along the way, instead of the usual means of navigating by hugging the coastline. It wasn't as if the Persian fleet had never sailed in the Aegean before, of course. They often headed to the northern Aegean about whatever business it was Persians did. It was a regular enough occurrence that hardly anyone in Athens even thought twice about it. Until, unexpectedly, instead of heading north, the Persians changed course, and headed west, aiming right for Greece. When they reached the Greek coast near Attica, the entire fleet under command of a Mede named Dattus turned towards Eritrea. After five days of battle there, the city was taken thanks to the usual batch of Greek political treachery, and anyone who didn't throw in with the Persians was sent off to slavery. And then Dattus turned his attention towards Athens. As soon as news that the Persian Armada was coming, Athens took a quick head count and did some math. And no matter how many times they added things up, they still came up far short of being able to field anything like the numbers the Persians had. Not only was the Persian fleet immense and enough of a problem to deal with all on its own, but each ship that could be seen, and there were enough to darken the waters for miles, carried aboard it even more men and horses. Not only had they brought fighting men, but also the cavalry. Athens had no way to deal with any of it. They weren't noted sailors and didn't have enough ships to float any real opposition in any case. They were unused to fighting cavalry, even if they had been prepared. And they hadn't won a fight against Persian forces in over 50 years. It looked like the best strategy for Athens was going to be to hole up inside the city and prepare for a siege. And that wasn't much of a strategy at all. A hoplite, we'd like to mention at this point, was a Greek citizen-soldier. You might almost think of them as the reservists or National Guardsmen of the time, though we hesitate to add that this is only a convenient way of getting the idea across and not a reflection of our thoughts about our modern fighting men and women. If you were a free citizen and possessed enough property and therefore wealth to buy the armor and weapons, you and your buddies could hang around at the weekends being soldiers. You weren't particularly trained for anything in general but at least you knew how to make and fight in what was called a phalanx. See, the traditional kit of the hoplite is an armor made of either linen or bronze depending on your means, a long spear, and most importantly, a shield. You and your fellows would form a line of eight or so men abreast, interlock your shields with each other, and then the men arranged in rows behind you as well as those lined up with you would be able to poke spears through gaps and impale the enemy. In this way, you could face down a lot of attackers and remain, as much as it was possible to do so on an active battlefield, relatively safe. Well, a lot safer than a guy running around by himself would be. The real downfall of fighting in a phalanx was fighting over uneven, hilly terrain. A phalanx, and therefore hoplites, work best over flat, open ground where they can maneuver as needed. You know, like a beach. Which is what the people of Athens thought was a better strategy. March the hoplites down to Marathon and meet the Persians before they were really ready and hopefully prevent them from leaving the beach and the plain onto which it led. It might just be possible to contain the Persian threat until help could arrive. Because they were going to need help, and fast, if they wanted to keep Datus and his troops not only out of Athens, but the rest of Greece as well. A raid right against the nine thousand or so hoplites and a thousand of their friends from Plataea who came along to help, were twenty-five thousand Persian infantry, a thousand cavalry, and one hundred thousand armed sailors held in reserve. There was no way the Athenians could win, and since it was going to take every hoplite they could muster to even attempt a holding action. It left Athens dangerously undefended. Anyone could walk into town and lock the doors behind them. Which is why, as the hoplites quick stepped down to marathon from Athens' front door, out the back door of Athens went a man called Philippides. He was, by all historical accounts, and remember it is just Herodotus, the best athlete in Athens. And he proceeded to prove it by running in just two days, 140 miles to Sparta to ask for help. Which the Spartans graciously and politely refused. At least they refused to send it immediately. See, it was one of the biggest holidays in Sparta, the Carnia, which was marked by the sort of athletic competitions that young men get up to when they've been trained for battle almost all their life. And because it was the Carnia, it was also a time of sacred peace in Sparta, And there was absolutely no way they could send troops to Athens until at least the full moon and the end of the celebration, which was a week away. And it would take them a further three days after that to get to Athens. So the Athenians would have to hold out for at least ten days before any help could possibly arrive. So back went Philippides at a run with the disappointing news. 140 miles back to Athens, which, you will note, is not only not 26 miles in change, but also not, at either end of the run, to a place called Marathon. That was a story made up by Plutarch in the first century CE. However, what we are absolutely assured did happen really, truly on Philopides' return run was that someone called him by name and that someone turned out to be the god Pan. Pan was curious to know why the Athenians did not honor him prior to the battle. Philippides could only assure the god that they certainly would from here on out, and apparently satisfied, Pan went off to see how things were going. We can only imagine what state of mind Philippides was in after two 140-mile back-to-back runs if he was starting to see goat-legged, horn-headed, pipe-playing gods out in the wilds. Meanwhile, back at the actual marathon, the two sides in the epic battle about to take place were standing around staring at each other. Neither one wanted to make the first move. The Athenians, because they were hoping for more help, and the Persians because... well, because they really weren't sure of themselves, mostly. There were, to be fair an awful lot of spears out there pointed at them. And the ground, aside from the bit of mountain the Persian army was currently camped on, was decidedly flat, which was exactly the sort of ground the hoplites enjoyed fighting on. Plus, in between the mountain and the flatland was this marsh that was really going to cause some havoc among the cavalry if they had to move first and try to get through it. Chances were the Greeks would get to them first. So really, it was best for both sides if nothing really happened just yet. And perhaps, disappointingly, that's where we leave the story. Oh, no suspense, though. Eventually, the two sides do get to fighting. And much to everyone's surprise, including their own, the Athenians win, even without the help of Sparta. Of course, according to all the stories, they had the help of Pan instead, in that he did the one thing Pan could always be counted on doing, mischievous god that he was. He danced and capered through the midst of the battle, singing and playing his pipes, and inciting among the Persians that mindless fear that was named after him. Panic. Which caused the Persians to flee the battlefield, take what survivors they could, and head back home. Oh, and also long-dead King Theseus and his troops showed up to help out. And there was a dog, but no one really believes the story about the dog. In any case, the Persian decisive loss at Marathon brings to an end the first Persian invasion of Greece. Not because the Persian Empire was so soundly defeated, which they were, but because while Darius was preparing for the comeback tour... Egypt revolted on him, and he had to attend to business elsewhere. Which he never does quite manage to do, because in 486 BCE, at the age of 64 and in ill health, he dies. Which leaves all the tidying up to the guy we have to do one more Persian episode about. His son Xerxes. Thanks for listening to the fourth part in an increasingly poorly named four part series made up of six parts about Persia. We here at GM Word of the Week can only apologize and assure you normal service will resume in May. Probably. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can always head over to our website at gmwordoftheweek.com and use the contact page there to send us an email. We've received a couple of notes from you folks this month which we will be ever so delighted to address during our May episodes, so there's that to look forward to. While you're there, and presuming you've enjoyed the show so far, head over to our support page and let us know how you really feel by selecting one of the options you'll find there and contributing to our ongoing success. Patreon has all the goodies, but that doesn't always suit everyone, so take your choice. We'll be happy to have it any way you care to provide it. Persian Fire was once again invaluable. In case you haven't heard, it was written by Tom Holland, and we'll have a link to it in the show description. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian. 140 miles in four days seems a bit much, don't you think? Casey. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. In this battle of Marathon there died, of the barbarians, about 6,400 men. And of the Athenians, 192. Those were the numbers of the fallen on both sides.